Welcome to another episode from 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. This one titled, London Bridge is Falling Down. Not too many months ago, we did an episode called 4 and 20 Blackbirds, and many of you must have liked it a lot because we got quite a bit of response from it. In that episode, we dug into the true meaning behind some of those innocent nursery rhymes and came up with some excellent history, some of it French, but most of it English. During the Middle Ages, people generally were not able to express themselves without fear of reprisal. Gossiping in public or criticizing the king or queen were forbidden, so the people constructed clever rhymes of protest and turned them into catchy children's songs. Under the guise of innocent ditties, these protests were shared among the common folk, and some have lasted hundreds of years. The real stories behind them are sometimes shocking, always fascinating, and studying them allows us an opportunity to learn our history, and hopefully never repeat it. After looking into 2,000 years of English history, with all its civil wars and coup d'etats, I am grateful that my junior high school history classes focused on just our little 200 years of American history. Our title story is the nursery rhyme, London Bridge is Falling Down. You all know it, having heard it somewhere along the pathways of your youth, and it's simple and memorable. I chose this one as the lead story because the history to this one was pretty much a head-scratcher everywhere I looked. No one seems to know for sure when it was written or what the underlying purpose was for the tune. It goes like this. Oh, there have been guesses to the real meaning. One guess is that when it was originally built, they would sacrifice children, entombing them alive so that their souls would watch over the bridge. The little game that kids play when singing the song by making a bridge with their arms and then closing in on one child sort of plays to that theory. Then there's the theory that the bridge was destroyed by Olaf of Norway in 1014 when he attacked to make way for his ships. And neither of these can be pinned on my fair lady then there's the great fire of london in 1066 and the age and damage theory again no my fair lady to blame and other sources dragged notable lords and ladies in but they really had nothing to do with london bridges falling down so at that point i gave up on searching the real meaning behind the nursery rhyme and did some digging on the london bridge wow what a history and guess what we found my fair lady As far as anyone knows, the first London Bridge was built by the Romans in about 55 AD. 
on the north side of the Thames River, where St. Paul's Cathedral now stands, was where the Romans placed their military settlement and called it Londinium. They built a pontoon bridge there to connect the south side, then later sunk wooden pilings deep into the riverbed to make it a permanent structure. When the Romans left around 410 A.D., the Saxons took their place and changed the name of the city to Londonvik, rebuilding the bridge several times. In 1014, King Olaf, with an attacking band of Vikings, did attack the city, and attaching ropes to the pilings, pulled them down, along with the bridge, to make way for his attacking ships. By 1176, in the reign of King Henry II, they began the reconstruction of the bridge using stone, and the king assigned a man named Peter Colchurch to direct the work. Both the king and Colchurch died before the bridge was completed in 1209. When it was completed, there were people living in homes and businesses that had been built on the bridge, and there was a chapel there as well, dedicated to St. Thomas A. Becket, a friend of Colchurch's. The bridge had 20 arches, all of them different sizes, and all of them narrow. This was and is one impressive bridge. During the Tudor period, there were over 200 buildings on the London Bridge. Some were over six stories high and overhung the road to the center of the bridge. The road was only four meters wide and had to bear wagon, horse, and foot traffic going both ways, so it was often congested. England was rife with revolution and internal wars in those years, and it became common to see the heads of losing factions impaled on the spikes at the southern gatehouse of the bridge, starting with that of William Wallace, followed by Thomas Moore, and then Thomas Cromwell. Now with regard to those buildings on top of the bridge, Henry's son King John decreed that those people should be taxed and that the taxes should be applied to the upkeep of the bridge. Smart idea from the guy who lost the crown jewels in a bog when his cart overturned. With the narrow arches, the water flowed fast between them, and those arches were the first part of the bridge to show signs of wear. When King John's son, Henry III, came to the throne, he gave his fair wife, Queen Eleanor, all of the funds that had come from rent from the buildings on the bridge. Eleanor of Provence was Queen Consort of England, as the spouse of King Henry III of England from 1236 until his death in 1272. Apparently, she didn't apply those funds to the bridge. In all fairness, King Henry III's reign was fraught with internal war and problems, and he and the Queen spent a part of the time trying to avoid getting killed, captured, or imprisoned. Although she was completely devoted to her husband and staunchly defended him against the rebel Simon de Montfort, 6th Earl of Leicester, she was very much hated by the Londoners. This was because she had brought a large number of relatives with her to England in her retinue. These were known as the Savoyards, and they were given influential positions in the government and realm. On one occasion, Eleanor's barge was attacked by angry citizens who pelted her with stones, mud, pieces of paving, rotten eggs, and vegetables. It wouldn't be surprising if those stones, mud, and pieces of paving came from the crumbling London Bridge. And as if all that wasn't enough, the distraught Londoners started a nursery rhyme which blamed her, Eleanor of Provence, for allowing London Bridge to fall to ruin during her time, a rhyme that has lasted almost 800 years. And now you know who my fair lady was. As an aside, London Bridge kept falling down, falling down, until in 831, a new bridge designed by Sir John Rennie was complete about a hundred yards east of the old bridge, and the old London Bridge was demolished. By 1900, however, Rennie's Bridge became too crowded and was widened in 1902, 
but by the 1960s, even that proved too narrow for all the traffic. In 1967, the Common Council of the City of London began to look for potential buyers for the London Bridge. Lake Havasu City founder and entrepreneur Robert P. McCulloch placed the winning bid of $2,460,000 on April 18, 1968. McCulloch came by this figure by doubling the estimated cost of dismantling the structure, which was $1.2 million, bringing the price to $2.4 million. He then added on $60,000, $1,000 for each year of his age at the time he estimated the bridge would be reconstructed in Arizona. Each block was meticulously numbered before the bridge was disassembled. The blocks were then shipped overseas through the Panama Canal to California and trucked from Long Beach to Arizona. Following reconstruction of the London Bridge, Lake Havasu City rededicated it in a ceremony on October 10, 1971. Since then, it has consistently remained a favorite among Arizona attractions, drawing in visitors from around the globe. It's also a popular stroll for people on romantic getaways in Arizona. The Lake Havasu City Visitor Center conducts a 90-minute walking tour of the London Bridge. Arizona tourists can see the strafing scars from World War II that mar the bridge's granite surface and stroll over sparkling Bridgewater Channel. The bridge is also a popular hangout for the Arizona boating crowd. You'll see all kinds of boats anchored in the shadow of this piece of history and icon among Arizona attractions. Oh, and back in England, the new London Bridge was under construction as the old Rennie Bridge was being dismantled, with traffic continuing throughout the process. On the 17th of March, 1973, Queen Elizabeth opened the bridge officially, and it, at last check, is doing just fine. Then there's Jack and Jill, which goes like this. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. This raises so many questions. Like, why did they go up a hill when water is usually found at the bottom of hills? How old was Jack? How old was Jill? How long did they stay up there at the top of the hill? Jack fell coming down, and so did Jill. Had they been drinking? So predictably, out comes the Americanized version. Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Little Jill forgot her pill, and soon she had a daughter. The first and most commonly repeated verse is, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. Many verses have been added to the rhyme, including a version with a total of 15 stanzas in a chapbook of the 19th century. The second verse, probably added as part of those extensions, has become a standard part of the nursery rhyme. Early versions took the form, Up Jack got, and home did trot, as fast as he could caper, to old Dame Dobb, who patched his knob, with vinegar and brown paper. By the early 20th century, this had been modified in some collections, like L. E. Walter's Mother Goose's Nursery Rhymes, London, 1919. Two, Up Jack got, and home did trot, as fast as he could caper, and went to bed and bound his head, with vinegar and brown paper. A third verse, sometimes added to the rhyme, was first recorded in a 19th century chapbook and took the form, Then Jill came in, and she did grin, to see Jack's paper plaster. Her mother whipped her across her knee, for laughing at Jack's disaster. While the true origins of the rhyme are unknown, there are several theories. As is common with nursery rhyme breakdowns, 
Complicated metaphors are often said to exist within the lyrics of Jack and Jill. Most explanations post-date the first publication of the rhyme and have no corroborating evidence. Around 1835, John Bellenden Kerr suggested that Jack and Jill were two priests, and this was enlarged by Catherine Elways in 1930 to indicate that Jack represented Cardinal Woolsey and Jill was Bishop Tarbes, who negotiated the marriage of Mary Tudor to the French king in 1514. It has also been suggested that the rhyme records the attempt by King Charles I to reform the taxes on liquid measures. He was blocked by Parliament, so subsequently ordered that the volume of a jack, one-half pint, be reduced, but the tax remained the same. This meant that he still received more tax, despite Parliament's veto. Hence, Jack fell down and broke his crown. Many pint glasses in the UK still have a line marking the half-pint level with a crown above it. And Jill came tumbling after. The reference to Jill, actually a gill or quarter pint, is said to reflect that the gill dropped in volume as a consequence. The suggestion has also been made that Jack and Jill represent Louis XVI of France, who was deposed and beheaded in 1793, lost his crown, and his queen, Marie Antoinette, who came tumbling after. A theory made difficult by the fact that the earliest printing of the rhyme predates those events. There is also a local belief that the rhyme records events in the village of Kilmersdon in Somerset in 1697, when a local spinster became pregnant, the putative father is said to have died from a rock fall, and the woman died in childbirth soon after. There's a bunch of possible answers. Take your pick. Next up, Humpty Dumpty. Who was Humpty? I'm going to give you a multiple choice. A, a very rotund kid. B, a big egg with a top hat. C, a humpback dumpster diver. D, King Henry III. E, a cannon. Humpty Dumpty is a character in an English nursery rhyme, probably originally a riddle and one of the best known in the English-speaking world. Though not explicitly described so, he is typically portrayed as an anthropomorphic egg. The first recorded versions of the rhyme date from late 18th century England and the tune from 1870 in James William Eliot's National Nursery Rhymes and Nursery Songs. Its origins are obscure and several theories have been advanced to suggest original meanings. The character of Humpty Dumpty was popularized in the United States by actor George L. Fox. As a character and literary illusion, he has appeared or been referred to in a large number of works of literature and popular culture, particularly Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. That was written in 1872. The rhyme is one of the best known and most popular in the English language. The most common modern text is, Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. I've never really gone with the answer that he was a big egg. So digging deeper, we found the original inspiration for Humpty Dumpty. You picked E, a cannon? You're right. Back in the 17th century, during the English Civil War, the parliamentarians, often known as the Roundheads, and the Royalists, who were loyal to the king and were known as Cavaliers, fought many fierce battles in the towns and countrysides. 
During the English Civil War in 1648, the town of Colchester was under siege. At the time of the Civil War in that year, Colchester was a town with a castle and several churches and was protected by the city wall. During the siege of Colchester, the 15th century tower of the church known as St. Mary's by the Wall was indeed much damaged. This happened because on June 15, 1648, the church was strengthened against attack by putting a cannon on the roof. At albertjack.com, you'll find this story along with lots of other great ones. The supporters of Charles I almost won the day, all thanks to his doughtiest defender, Humpty Dumpty. In pole position, as it were, on top of the church tower of St. Mary at the Walls, one-eyed Thompson, the gunner, managed to blast away the attacking roundhead troops with rousing success for 11 whole weeks. That is, until the top of the church tower was eventually blown away, sending Humpty Dumpty crashing to the ground outside the city wall, where it buried itself in deep marshland. The king's cavalry, the horses, and the infantry, the men, hurried to retrieve the cannon in order to repair it, but they couldn't put Humpty together again, and without their weapon of mass destruction, they were soon overrun by Lord Fairfax and his soldiers. There are another two verses preceding the better-known one that tell the tale in more detail. In 1648, when England suffered the pains of state, the Roundheads laid siege to Colchester Town, where the king's men still fought for the crown. There one-eyed Thompson stood on the wall, a gunner the deadliest aim of all. From St. Mary's Tower his cannon he fired. Humpty Dumpty was its name. Not a, not a great job of rhyming there, but it does tell a good story. This was one of a number of setbacks, and on August 28, 1648, the Royalists laid down their weapons, opened the gates of Colchester, and surrendered to the Parliamentarians. Next, have you been eating your curds and whey? Little Miss Muffet did, and her story is next. This from treasuryislands.wordpress.com Little Miss Muffet sat on a tuffet, eating her curds and whey. Along came a spider that sat down beside her and frightened Miss Muffet away. First published in Songs for the Nursery in 1805, there are two spurious theories regarding the origins of the rhyme. The first concerns physician and entomologist Dr. Thomas Muffet, a staunch Puritan who observed his daughter frightened away from her cheesy meal by a visiting arachnid, the second concerns Mary, Queen of Scots. The tale goes that Protestant reformer John Knox, a round, unpleasant fellow and the spider of the rhyme, made an enemy of the queen with the publication of The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women in 1558, with which he intended to demonstrate how abominable before God is the empire or rule of a wicked woman, yea, of a traitorous and illegitimate daughter. He obviously had it in for her. Knox was enormously influential in Scotland. His sermons regularly involved castigation of Mary, and his influence aided growing animosity toward her. When her nobles rebelled against her, Mary fled to England where her cousin Elizabeth I was less than welcoming and kept her under house arrest for 19 years. 
so much for sorority. The rhyme, then, is a playful suggestion that, had Mary got Knox on her side, things could have been very different. As a side note, no one actually knows for certain what a tuffet is. Though it's often supposed to be a stout, three-legged stool, the truth is that Little Miss Muffet contains the only instance of the use of the word tuffet in historic English. If the word is a medieval term for a stool, a second appearance of the word is yet to be found. Next, we're taking a break from nursery rhymes and going to the grown-up stuff. You know what I'm talking about here. That's right, fairy tales. This brings us to the Brothers Grimm. In the years before Stephen King, a few centuries to be exact, these guys were the blood and guts of entertainment. Their stories were, well, grim. The Brothers Grimm, Jacob and Wilhelm, were German academics, linguists, cultural researchers, lexicographers, and authors who together specialized in collecting and publishing folklore during the 19th century. They were among the best-known storytellers of folktales and popularized stories such as Cinderella, The Frog Prince, Hansel and Gretel, Rapunzel, Rumpelstiltskin, Sleeping Beauty, and Snow White. Their first collection of folktales, Children's and Household Tales, was published in 1812. How grim were these stories? In the brother's grim version of Cinderella, for instance, one of Cinderella's evil stepsisters cuts off her own toes and the other cuts off her heel so they can both fit into the tiny glass slipper. The prince is notified by little doves that there is blood on the shoe, which allows him to discover that the true owner is Cinderella. And once the stepsisters realize that they should try to win favor with Cinderella, after all she will be queen, they attend her wedding only to have their eyes pecked out by birds. And it gets worse from there. But the brothers Grimm weren't the only ones telling sordid tales. Hans Christian Andersen's The Little Mermaid is very different from the Disney film. Some parts align. She does see the prince from afar in his ship, and she does rescue him from drowning and fall in love with him. He doesn't see her. She does visit the sea witch, who takes her tongue in exchange for legs, and she does do it because the little mermaid was a prime contestant for You've Got Talent. The deal is the same. The mermaid can only remain a human if she finds true love's kiss and the prince falls in love with and marries her. However, the penalty in the movie is only that Ariel will turn back into a mermaid if she fails. In the story, she will die if she fails. Also, while the prince remains a main motivator, the mermaid in the story is also motivated because humans have eternal souls and mermaids don't. The Disney movie leaves out that penalty the mermaid pays for having legs. Every single step she takes will feel like she's walking on sharp shards of glass. At first, it seems like the plan is working, but then the prince ends up marrying another, a woman he thinks is the person who saved him. The mermaid can't actually tell him the truth since she can't talk. She is told that if she kills the prince, then she can simply turn back into a mermaid and doesn't have to die. She just can't do it, though. She throws herself into the sea and turns into sea foam, though it should be mentioned that she then becomes a daughter of the air, entering a kind of purgatory where she has to do good deeds until she maybe earns a soul, which would take about 300 years for that to happen. They say the movie is never as good as the book, but I think Disney did a good job with the remake on that one. Then there was The Fox and the Hound. The Fox and the Hound is based on a 1967 novel written by Daniel P. Mannix. In the book, the fox is raised by the dog owner Hunter's family, but eventually returns to the wild. 
he occasionally returns to taunt the dogs and flash his cunning fox skills. One of the dogs breaks his chain and chases him. That dog ends up getting hit by a train. The hunter is devastated and vows revenge on the fox. He becomes obsessed but can never catch him, although he does kill the fox's first mate, second mate, and children. Eventually, Todd the fox does die, but of exhaustion from being chased so much. Copper, the dog from the fox and the hound, is so old that he needs to be shot, and that's the end of the book. Pretty different from the movie, where a puppy and a baby fox become best friends. Beauty and the Beast is actually pretty accurate, except for some uninteresting details, like how Belle's father used to be rich but got himself into major debt. There is one unfortunate detail that the story does leave out. In the first believed version of the tale by Gabriel Suzanne Barbeau de Villeneuve, Belle has two wicked sisters, lots of wicked family members in fairy tales. The beast allows Belle to travel home as long as she's only gone for a week. Her sisters are extremely jealous to hear about her luxurious life and try to persuade Belle to stay with them longer than a week in the hopes that the beast will be infuriated with Belle and eat her alive upon her return. Yikes. Oh! Who's that I see walking in these woods? Why, it's Little Red Riding Hood. Hey, On, back to the Brothers Grimm, Little Red Riding Hood. This is a morality folktale that takes form in a number of countries. The story revolves around a girl called Little Red Riding Hood. In the Grimm's and Peralt's version of the tale, she is named after the red-hooded cape cloak that she wears. The girl walks through the woods to deliver food to her sickly grandmother. Wine and cake, depending on the translation. In Grimm's version, she had the order from her mother to stay strictly on the path. A big bad wolf wants to eat the girl and the food in the basket. He secretly follows her behind the trees, bushes, shrubs, and patches of little and tall grass. He approaches Little Red Riding Hood, and she naively tells him where she's going. He suggests that the girl pick some flowers, which she does. In the meantime, he goes to the grandmother's house and gains entry by pretending to be the girl. Then he swallows the grandmother whole and waits for the girl, disguised as the grandma. When the girl arrives, she notices that her grandmother looks very strange. Little Red then says, what a deep voice you have, the better to greet you with. Goodness, what big eyes you have, the better to see you with. What big hands you have, the better to hug you with. And lastly, what a big mouth you have, the better to eat you with. At which point the wolf jumps out of bed and eats her up too. Then he falls asleep. In Charles Perrault's version of the story, the first version to be published, the tale ends here. However, in later versions, the story continues generally as follows. A woodcutter in the French version, but in the Brothers Grimm and traditional German versions it was a hunter, comes to the rescue and with his axe cuts open the sleeping wolf. Little Red Riding Hood and her grandmother emerge unharmed. They then fill the wolf's body with heavy stones. The wolf awakens and tries to flee, but the stones cause him to collapse and die. Sanitized versions of the story have the grandmother shut in the closet instead of eaten, and some have Little Red Riding Hood saved by the lumberjack as the wolf advances on her, rather than after she's eaten, where the woodcutter kills the wolf with his axe. No doubt Little Red Riding Hood was a morality tale for little and big girls. You hang out with wolves, and you're gonna pay the consequences.
Lucy Locket lost a pocket, Kitty Fisher found it. There was not a penny in it, just a ribbon round it. Lucy Locket lost her pocket, Kitty Fisher found it. Not a penny was there in it, only ribbon round it. This one has some pretty intriguing origins. It stems from an 18th century British courtesan's romantic entanglements, and it was sung to the tune of Yankee Doodle. We've covered the importance of Yankee Doodle to the American colonists in our episode titled The American Army of Two. Catherine Maria Kitty Fisher was one of London's most famous courtesans during the 18th century. Little is known about her childhood, but instead of slaving away as a milliner for a pittance, Kitty decided to make a career change to courtesan when she saw how much more money she could be making, what nice things she could get with it, and how much more fun she could be having. Aside from the amusements of the boudoir, Kitty also advertised clever and witty conversation. And she was known for her love of sparklies. When he first met her, Giacomo Casanova noted that she was magnificently dressed, and it is no exaggeration to say that she had on diamonds worth 500,000 francs. She also was a favorite subject of British painter Sir Joshua Reynolds. Yet for all of this, Kitty was known for her light-hearted antics. Once she even ate a thousand-pound banknote on her bread and butter. This was what made people love Kitty so much. Despite her shady way of earning a living, she'd worked her way up from near the bottom of the ladder to a very comfortable position near the top. But she still retained some of her working-class roots. While riding in James Park one day, Kitty had a little mishap. She was thrown from her horse and landed on the ground in such a way that her skirts billowed up and some of the public got a free show. Embarrassed, Kitty was tearful, but then she regained her composure and, amused at her little fall, called for a sedan chair to take her home. The press had a field day with this. They came with all sorts of clever little songs and rhymes about it. Kitty took it all in stride. Really, it may have helped her to remain fresh in the minds of London's public. The rhyme we just read has to do with one of Kitty's admirers. Apparently, Lucy Lockett, a barmaid, gave the guy she'd been seeing the cold shoulder after he'd spent all his money on her. Even though the spurned lover was broke, he certainly wasn't broken-hearted. He soon found love again on the rebound in the arms of Kitty Fisher, which didn't sit too well with Lucy Lockett. Funnily enough, at that time, the word Lockett was the euphemism for a female part. And aside from the boyfriend being the pocket or means of cash, Ladies of the evening were known to tie their pockets round their thighs with ribbon. Perhaps another of Kitty's lovers may have had some bearing on the rhyme. Kitty was having a very passionate, very public affair with Lord Coventry, the husband of Maria Gunning. Needless to say, the two women hated each other and had some very public spats as well that were fodder for gossip in London society. Life in the fast lane soon lost its appeal for Kitty, and she married up in 1766 and became a society matron. She became very involved in philanthropic efforts and a well-regarded member of London High Society. But it was all too short-lived. After four months of marriage, Kitty died of smallpox. So, unfortunately, she was unable to enjoy the fruits of her choice of domesticity. But she still had to go out with style. She was buried in her ball gown per her last wishes. Nonetheless, Kitty's name and reputation have lived on in this little ditty that has now become a child's nursery rhyme. So now when you hear a little kid reciting or singing it, You'll know the real story behind the audacious woman about whom it was written. Then there's Little Jack Horner. Little Jack Horner sat in the corner, eating his Christmas pie. He put in his thumb and pulled out a plum and said, What a good boy am I. 
On the surface, we never really expect any nursery rhyme character to exist, but remarkably, Little Jack Horner actually did exist, and as opposed to other nursery rhymes, he was a real person, and what's more, he really did pull out a plum. Even the pie was real, but whether he was a good boy or not, the answer is up for you to decide. During his reign, King Henry VIII ordered Thomas Cromwell to lead his men and demolish all monasteries in England because the king had broken away from the Catholic Church. Cromwell was tasked not only to pull down all Catholic establishments, but to plunder their chattels, hand over all the gold, silver, and land to Henry VIII. Monasteries were a rich source of wealth in terms of cash and goods. Today we know Glastonbury for the famous rock concerts and festivals, but in Henry's day it was a Benedictine monastery, the largest and wealthiest abbey in his kingdom. Jack Horner, Esquire, was steward to the Bishop of Glastonbury, Richard Whiting, 1461 to 1539. The job of steward was an executive position. Very few men would be trusted to do this job. Jack Horner was privileged to run the household of the bishop, administer the accounts of the abbey, and collect rents, taxes, and fees from tenants, peasants, and others connected with the manor of Glastonbury. This vast estate had escaped King Henry VIII's army of demolition experts and pillagers, but knowing that it was the very last religious property remaining in Somerset, he had to accept that his days were numbered, and he needed to act fast. It was only a matter of time before his entire livelihood would be harshly taken away. He knew Henry VIII didn't mind a bribe or two, so the bishop took the decision to take full advantage of the shady side of King Henry. He made a plan and confided in one man that he could really trust Jack Horner. He tasked Horner with delivering a very special gift to the king. It was to be a very large, top-quality pie filled with nothing less than 12 title deeds relating to an assortment of English manorial estates that were owned by the bishop. And we know from our previous episode titled Four and Twenty Blackbirds just how much King Henry VIII enjoyed big pies with lots of surprises in them. Why use a pie to hide the documents? All types of thieves and vagabonds roamed the streets of England. There was no police force, and thief-takers were generally corrupt. It was all too common for travelers not only to be cautious, but to be very creative in hiding their valuable goods in order they could thwart robbers. Seems to me a giant pie would be a pretty good target for these guys, but we'll let the story continue. Jack Horner was no fool and did not believe that King Henry would even dream of accepting 12 title deeds for small properties instead of one consisting of the entire abbey and all that land including those other 12 properties. There was also a threat that King Henry could turn on the messenger in revenge for the sheer audacity of the plan. Jack had to think very fast. He could not refuse to undertake the errand, nor could he argue with the bishop. In Jack's mind, the solution was obvious. He would simply steal the title deeds of the Manor of Mells. It was prime real estate and certainly would be considered to be the real plum out of those 12 other manors. It was the deeds to the property and land that was secreted in the plum pie. King Henry did reject the pie, just as Jack Horner predicted, but for self-preservation he had to protect himself, so he chose to hand over the bishop. He was subsequently arrested by the king's men, charged and convicted of treason. The crime he was accused of committing was that he acted against the crown by remaining loyal to Rome. Thus ends the story of little Jack Horner. We hope you enjoyed this episode of 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We really enjoy reviews at iTunes and Facebook likes and shares at www.facebook.com forward slash 1001 Heroes, A-G-R-O-E-S. 
and stop by our new show, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, at iTunes and most other podcatcher sites. Or find it at our website at www.1001storiespodcast.com. Thank you so much for joining us. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is our story.